Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, October the 25th, 2018, and this is episode 2,317 of the Survival Podcast. Yes, I have corrected my screwed up episode numbers. Uh, the good news is even though they were screwed up on the blog and the title, they were proper in the uh, in the MP3 files, so they should all still work wherever you're storing them, if you're storing them beyond keeping them on iTunes or Stitcher or what have you. Anyway, since it is a Thursday, it's time for a listener call show. This is where you pick up and dial the Think Line. That number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Uh, I'm kind of excited. I, this is one of the weeks where I've got like this really great variety of stuff to talk about. Some really positive stuff and some stuff I just enjoy. Uh, most of the callers did a great job in the last week of getting calls in where I can actually hear what you're saying. Uh, they followed the rules. They asked the, the, the question or made the point up front. Then they gave me the details. They called from a quiet location. They talked into the phone instead of turning your head away from the phone and then back to the phone and then turning away from back. Like, they did everything right, and we got great subjects. What are we going to talk about? A question on persimmons, specifically making persimmon mead and other things that you can do with persimmons. Uh, guys, I love this one. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, persimmons are one of the most underrated things out there. Uh, they make fantastic mead, and they, they just lend themselves to a lot of things, and specifically with alcohol, quite quite well. So we'll lead off with that. Then we're going to talk about a rural exodus. This one is actually in Ontario, Canada, kind of rural communities in Canada, having all of the young people leave. And it's, in this particular guy's uh, situation, creating a problem with losing um, radio frequencies for 5G internet, which I guess is a big thing for them to be able to get good internet speed. Uh, but I think this is like, that's way too narrow of a focus on this actual problem that's going on in a lot of places. Uh, I have an awesome AAR for you civilian types, that's after action review, uh, on CAC teams. And Jack is a jerk once again. Triple uh, A is a prep. We have a, a, a guy call in about that, and I, I thought this was funny because I actually have a link in the show notes for a video from nine years ago, and we'll hear his comments, and I'll give you my thoughts, and I'll, I'll talk about the response I got nine years ago when my truck broke down, and I was able to use a AAA card to uh, to get out of what would have been a pretty nasty little jam otherwise, and uh, how people get tunnel vision in the world of prepping. I, I think it's gotten better, and we'll talk about the situation nine years ago in the world of preparedness versus today. Uh, I have a question on selling guns and getting the best value for them. More on extending networks, not the kind where you know someone that knows someone, but the computer network kind, uh, and cable and distance specifications. I'll, I'll, I'm going to hear some, you're wrong, Jack, and I, I don't know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we come to it. Uh, and then security for vehicles, when you can see everything inside them, in this case a hatchback. Like It's hard to store stuff that's of value in your vehicle like for preparedness and stuff like that because it's advertising the thieves. Hey, there's cool stuff here. We'll talk about that. And I'm going to crowdsource that one a bit and get some ideas from the audience. Um, that, that, we'll have all of that more in just a moment. Let's take a look at this year in history. It's going to be a short history segment because what I chose for today's history segment has actually made me choose a different song of the day than I originally had planned. Because in 1980, on this day, ACDC 
earned their first top 40 hit with You Shook Me All Night Long. Probably one of the most well-known songs in the world, honestly. And ACDC would never have another single as popular as You Shook Me All Night Long, but the group's ongoing ability to sell full-length rock albums, even in an era where digital downloads have decimated album sales across all genres, is utterly without parallel. The group's commercial success has been credited in part to their refusal to allow their song catalog to be cannibalized and repackaged into compilation albums. Whatever the reason, however, according to the Recording Industry Association of America, ACDC rank as the 10th highest selling recording artists of all time, with 71 million albums sold, 30 million fewer than Led Zeppelin, but roughly 5 million more than both the Rolling Stones and Aerosmith, and nearly 15 million more than both Metallica and Van Halen. That's that's impressive. I'll save thoughts on the song itself for the end of the day, because yes, we're going to go out with some rock today at the end of the show. I want to remind you again before we get started on today's calls, we do have MSB on sale, guys. Look, MSB is a good deal. Think about this. If you're going to plant some trees this spring, and you're going to maybe go to our partner, Bob Wells Nursery's website, and buy trees. And you should, because he's got some of the best pricing and widest availability that you'll find anywhere online. And he takes care of people. He ships a top-quality product. All right? So let's say you're going to buy five trees at 30 bucks a piece. That's $150 worth of trees. You use the discount code, you get $15 off. With MSB on sale for $30, you just got half your money back with one benefit. Let's say that you use herbal supplements, and you probably should, and you decide that, hey, maybe I can get some of this stuff in Western Botanicals. It's a great place to do it. You get a $50 membership for free the day you sign up, okay? So now you've got 80 bucks, and whenever you buy anything from Western Botanicals, they give that $50 discount program to you for free for your first year as an MSB member, and they get 25% off everything that you order. If you ordered $100 worth of supplements over the next year, which is not that much, that's another $25. So just going back to the, the, the trees and the $25, and forget the value of the membership there, right? Now you're at $35, $40. You're $10 ahead using two benefits. There's like 70 more of them. Gunadapters.com, Ridge Wallet, ButcherBox. ButcherBox saves you, if you are a monthly customer of ButcherBox, MSB sends you, saves you $10 a month. That's $120 a year for a $30 membership. If you are a ButcherBox customer and you're on the Every Other Month program, it's still $60 a year. That's still twice what the membership's selling for right now on sale. The discount code is FALL18 because it's 2018 and it's FALL. F-A-L-L-1-8. You can sign up online or if you want to pay by mail, you go to the sign-up page. And there's a form to mail in and just write that on there. And depending on how you pay, we'll adjust accordingly. Um, if you're doing annual, then obviously you're sending cash, check, money order, etc. Then just adjust down to the 30 bucks. If you're doing silver, just send the full amount of silver for a year. And we'll add the 25% of extra time on three extra months to each membership year that you pay for. So I, I, I'm telling you guys, this is a fantastic deal on a product. I have people that have been MSB members for eight and a half years now. Eight and a half years. They've maintained their membership, not just to support the show because it makes financial sense, even at 50 bucks. At 30 bucks, it's stupid cheap. 
So if you've been on the fence about it, consider signing up today. And remember, the reason I can bring you all the stuff that we bring you five days a week is because of MSB. It absolutely is. I have made a commitment, and this is the big thing, guys. I made a commitment with the sponsors that I have. I work with small companies. I charge them a very small amount of money. When you think about what they get, I charge a sponsor $2,500 a year to be a sponsor of a show with 200,000 listeners. That is ridiculously cheap, but they, most of them have been with me for seven, eight years. I appreciate their loyalty, and when we do bring someone new in, I give them the same pricing. I just think it's the right thing to do, and because of a membership program that we have, I can do that and make this audience accessible to those small companies that I know will take care of you. That's the other thing, too. Like, I just had an issue. JM Bullion. Here's an example with the sponsorship stuff. I just had a new guy emails me and says, I, I went to use the JM Bullion discount. I used it in August, and then I tried to use it again in October, and it wouldn't work. I got in touch with their online customer service, and they said you can only use the code, the discount, once a year. I fire off an, evil, an email to Michael, who is the president of the company, and say, Michael, I mean, if you guys want to change something, let me know, but that was not our agreement. He, I get an email back. I can't do anything right now. I'm on an airplane. I will take care of this. I will make sure my staff knows that is not the deal, that it is you can use the code once a month. And I will get everybody properly corrected on that, and we will get this taken care of. I got that email back in like you know 20 minutes while the guy's on an airplane. I have sponsors like that because it's not to me about making a bunch of money off of sponsorship. It's about my things that I recommend to you. Those people take care of you. And by running a membership revenue model that is you know more than 80% of my revenue, I'm able to, to like basically tell people that I don't really want to do business with, go screw. Go screw. I'm not beholden to them. I'm beholden to you guys because you guys pay my bills. This is a great time of a year to join. Uh, you know, it's kind of the downtime before we hit the holidays. So, you know, you have a few extra bucks around. Use the discounts going through the holidays. By the time you get to 2019, you'll have your money back. And then 20, 2019 is, is gravy whenever you use it. And the gun adapters is another example. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And that is your calls for me. And we're going to start out with a call about persimmons. Let's hear that call, and I will come back and uh, give you my thoughts on um, persimmon mead, which starts out with yum, delicious, please. All right, here we go. Hey, Jack, this is Zach from East Texas. I was hoping to uh, get your thoughts on any kind of info or ideas on uh, persimmon-based mead. We have some persimmons coming in, and I'd like to use them for a good mead. And if you have any other ideas on what I can do with persimmons, because I don't have much experience with them, just uh, getting a, getting them as a gift from a friend. So just wondering. Thank you. Um, there's been a few meads that I've made that my thoughts immediately were, Somebody in the commercial mead world should be making this the right way, which is a dry, fully attenuated mead that ages well, not sugary crap. And one of those is my Three Flowers blend. Um, I did a, a cucumber mint that I thought was absolutely beyond fantastic, a Meyer lemon infusion that was just amazing, and a Sin Vin Gin, which is cinnamon, vanilla and ginger and those are all to me like gold medal cup level meads in in their own world the fruit mead 
that is the best meads that I've ever made or tasted when other people made really, though, is persimmon. It is fantastic for so many reasons in, in the world of mead making, and here's, here's some of why. Number one, the sugar content of persimmons is very high. So one of the things you're going to want to do when you get these persimmons from your friend, I don't know if they're going to be wild persimmons or domesticated persimmons, is you're going to want to know if they are an astringent or non-astringent form of uh, persimmon. You can find this out real quick if your friend doesn't know, and he probably does just by tasting one. Um, if they taste like, you remember that in Wally Coyote and the Roadrunner that every once in a while, um, you know, the, the there was maybe it was other cartoons, but it was something in the Roadrunner Bugs Bunny thing where uh, you'd see a character dump alum uh, into another character's mouth and their mouth would just pucker up, right? Persimmons, most varieties are very astringent and they cause that kind of reaction. It's a pucker. It's not good. It's like, how can this thing be good? It can. It's called bledding. And what you do is you actually allow them to sit out at room temperature on a counter until they, they'll get oranger, brighter orange, and they'll get soft. And at that point, they're sh like sh sugary sweet. There is some non-astringent varieties. The only actual one I've ever been able to find, supposedly there's more, is called Fuyu. Uh, I grow them here, and they're really great for eating fresh. I actually prefer to eat them fresh than to turn them into mead, even though they make great mead too, because you can eat them fresh without them being like a mush. That's why most people make jams and stuff out of persimmons, because you let them bled. Sometimes with wild persimmons, they'll hang on the tree to the point where they've, they've bled it out there on their own. You shake the tree, and what falls down is already sweet and ready to go. So, um, so it all depends on that. But you want to use your persimmons sweet when you make mead. As to the amount... I like to use about four cups of chopped up into pieces persimmon uh, in making my meads. And then that's per gallon. So I have a big four-cup Pyrex, um, you know, like a measuring deal. And that's kind of how I ended up using most of the time two to four cups. That's as much as fit in that thing. That's as much as I want to shove in a one-gallon jug. That's about the amount to use. The thing to do with persimmons to really bring around the total complex nature of the persimmon, something to counterbalance it and put a little bit of acid uh, to go in, a little bitterness, a little sour with all that sweet, is orange. And about one medium orange, give it a good rinsing, you know, especially if it's not an organic orange. And I would buy organic oranges for this just because we're going to use um, the, 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 uh, the rind. I want to say rind, but I'm, I'm missing the word. The zest. So you're going to get a microplane zester. I have one available through T-Spaz, but you know, all what I'll do is I'll link to it in the show notes. But that's the kind of thing you want to use. You want to take just the orange part of the rind off, the whole orange. Throw it all in there. Cut the orange open. Squeeze the juice, as much juice as you can get out of the orange. You can even pull some of the pulp out, but you want to leave all the white behind. The white is bitter. Right, So none of the white goes in. So don't just peel it and throw it in there because you're going to get a lot of that pith along with it. And when it's in there for a long ferment, you'll get too much of that. You won't really – it will take away from, from what you've done. And three pounds of honey to the gallon. Fill the fermenter almost to the top. This is my, this is my method that everybody says is wrong, and it always works great. So you fill it almost, you leave it some room in your one gallon jug and you can scale it up and just scale the ingredients I've given you up and ferment it out until it stops vigorously fermenting. Rack it into a second fermenter at that point 
and top it off to a full gallon with water. If you're really worried that there might be some bugaboos in your water, boil your water and let it cool down below 100 degrees before you add it, and you can do that. I just take water straight out of my Berkey and put it right into the, the, the things, and it's it always works just fine. A lot of mead makers will say, when you do this, it'll start fermenting again. Good. If it does, I want a full attenuated mead. But what I want to do is when I make a gallon of mead, I want a flipping gallon of mead at the end of it. If you feel a need at some point to rack it a third time to a third fermenter, when you do that, you will lose some and do not top it off again. This is a one-time trick type thing that you can do. Think about what we're doing. We're using three pounds of honey to the gallon. We're using a sweet fruit like a persimmon. We are not going to have any problems at all um, as far as having a good full-bodied mead when we're done with it. It will probably take about 60 days for this mead to be done, but it ages beautifully. At that point, since you're using one-gallon fermenters, if you're doing a small batch, you can completely cold crash it and get it crystal clear. Just put the whole fermenter in the refrigerator. If you're using like the juice bottles and all like I do, you, you know, the airlock sticks up, you know, take and take a, put a regular cap on it and stick it in there. If you open it up a day later and you get gas off of it, like a little bit, like a open it up, let it, let it gas off and close it back up and stick it in there. Leave it in there until when you open it up, you don't get that. If you're getting that a lot, you did not fully ferment your meat, and it's still continuing to ferment a little bit in the refrigerator. So what you can do is, again, when you're sure it's done, take it out of the refrigerator, let the lid off, nope, right? Put the lid back on it, leave it out at room temperature for a while. Okay? Open it up. See if it psts. And it might, just from air expansion, put the lid back on, And if at that point, see, this is all hydrometer. Now you're taking stuff out. You're messing stuff up. You open that thing up. It's been sitting for a day at room temperature with the lid closed down on it. And you open it up and there's no off-gassing. It's done. Put it in your bottle. However you do that. I like to use a small carboy. Uh, the plastic ones that come from Uline. They have a little spigot in the bottom. I siphon into that. And then you just drain. You just use that spigot. I don't use a bottling wand anymore. I use nothing. Just makes bottling easy. You get about five 16-ounce bottles, uh, four-and-a-half bottles of wine-sized bottles. Um, bottle it and let it age. You can drink it right away. It's good. It will be a very bright and not sweet but fruity mead at the beginning. And as it ages, it will, it will lose some of the brightness, but it will develop lots of layers of complexity. This is also a fantastic mead to oak. It is beautiful oaked, but you don't need to oak it very long. And so what I would do is I would wait till you think it's close to done anyway. Uh, sterilize basically hot water. Take take a, a very a pot, a small pot of water, and take a. You don't need a whole infusion spiral. And I'll put a link to where you can get the infusion spirals too. But a medium toast oak is about what to do. So take a piece, a couple inches long, break it off. Boil a pot of water. Take a set of tongs. You Because if you leave it in there too long, you're going to really leach a lot of what that piece of wood has to give you into that hot water. It's going to look like tea the second you put it in there. Just dip it in there. Count one or two. Pull it out. It's good enough. Tie something to it, like a piece of string, and put it in your, your mead container. 
and put the lid on, airlock, what have you. Let it sit for a day. Take a couple drops of it and taste it. See if you like the oak contribution. If not, let it sit in there another day. Two days to a week maximum. You want a subtle background oak, like a nice Chardonnay, not one that tastes like you're eating a log, okay? And you age an oat persimmon orange mead, and I'm telling you, it will stand with anything. As far as other things to do with your persimmons, there are a lot of sugar in there. They make a good moonshine fuel, I mean mash, fuel, right? Moonshine fuel mash. Um, run out of a pot still, a persimmon liquor is, ugh. Even if you don't want to make fuel, right, and you go buy your fuel in a bottle that says vodka, a persimmon vodka infusion. And that's just throw some persimmons in a jar, cover them with vodka, put the lid on, set it in a dark corner for a couple, three days, shake it once a day, taste it when there's enough persimmon flavor in the vodka, strain it off, right? Then you have vodka-infused persimmons, And those can actually be cooked down just a little bit and make a good sauce uh, to put on like wild game or something like that. So I'm sure there's a lot of other uses for persimmons, jam, etc. But to me, the highest, most noble use of persimmon is in the world of mead making. Thanks for that question. And boy, I'm going to have to make some of that soon. I've got a few persimmons in my freezer just for that case. Oh, that's another thing. Once your persimmons are bledded, which means they're sweet and they're ready to use and you're not ready to make mead yet, throw them in a Ziploc bag, throw them in the freezer. Don't let it go to waste, right? You can you can leave it in there for months. And actually freezing any fruit when you're making mead, if you're going to be using the whole fruit or pieces of fruit, is a great idea because it ruptures the cells and it gives the yeast more access to get in and do its job. All right, you get a lot more flavor that way. Let's go on and take another question. This one on the rural exodus. Hey, Jack. How would you deal with the exodus of young people from rural places to the cities? At uh, Adrian in East Ontario, we're having an issue over here where the government of Canada is trying to, uh, or, or is about, or uh, may have already done it, uh, auctioning off some of the, our internet, our radio bands, uh, for 5G connectivity in the major cities. But people in rural areas have very little say in losing their internet. Now, there's the, always the chicken and the egg. Which one comes first, bringing in more people, more population to rural areas, or finding ways to stem it with spending and so on and so forth? What's your thoughts? Thanks for the, your opinion. Appreciate it, and thanks for all you do. Bye-bye. Okay, so I'm going to try to go a little bit more broad with this. I, I don't really get exactly what's going on with how Canada handles their telecommunications and, um, you know, band frequencies for 5G, because that's just rolling out. And honestly, like, in, unless you're saying they're getting, like, the spectrum's being given to a provider that's not where you are, because really, like, the, the spectrums are not location-dependent, right? So I'll just accept this is a problem. But let's look at the root problem, because this is a problem that rural communities have had for a long time. Right, um, rural communities have traditionally fought keeping young people there because most of these rural communities, if you think about it, think about it from this standpoint: they they can either grow or decline. It's very difficult for them to remain in the stasis. 
Um, and if they grow to a certain point, then they're no longer rural communities. And most of the reasons people are there is because they want to live in rural communities. So it, 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 it's hard to stay in a stasis because in, and typically in rural communities, people tend to have more children. So if you have the average family having three children instead of two, then if everybody stays, your population grows by a third every year. And if you know if you could get a third, uh, one third, thirty-three percent return on investment uh, every year guaranteed, well, I wouldn't even. I, you'd say, what should I invest in? That. Just don't. Well, sometimes you can get a bit. I don't care. If you can give me a guaranteed thirty-three and a third, and I can put all the money I want into it, because I know what's going to happen. With exponential growth, right? So I mean, that's I mean, ten percent has a pretty big exponential growth, but a thirty percent exponential growth rate, and these urban communities would become big really fast. So, some percentage of those who are born there, if they want to have a life, and if that community is not going to grow from you know small town to mid-sized city, they have to leave. There's only so much opportunity there. So it's a standard thing that some percentage thereof in any rural community will leave. Well, if you reach a tipping point where more begin to leave than stay, and instead of you know finding that stasis, it starts to go down in population, you might even actually get for a very brief period a little bit of a boom time. Because there'll be less people than jobs, and therefore... It's easier to find a job, and people that normally couldn't get a job now can. But as the population goes down, well, we don't need two grocery stores, right? And if if there is a if it's a rural community, small town environment, maybe a couple dozen small towns that actually make up the population of uh, a, a, a mid-sized or small city, um, but they're all kind of separated. But maybe there is a big uh, employer. West Virginia, the coal mines, for instance. Other places might be uh, an industrial park with two or three large corporations that went there for low labor rates. If that pulls out, then all of those communities can start to die. And as they do, young people look around, there's nothing here, and they leave. And here's the big thing. Generally, your best leave and your worst stay. right? Because your, your best are like, I don't want to hang out with Billy and do heroin. I want a life. I want to go to, you know, they want, they, and the young people they want, they want a social life. I want cool bars to go to. I want concerts to go to. I want cool restaurants like I see on, and especially see, I think another thing driving it now is the internet. Cause when, when I was growing up in Pottsville, you know, since I had grown up in Jacksonville to, to a degree, but even in rural parts of Jacksonville, and, and we didn't live a very flamboyant, extravagant life, I knew there was some things that I was missing, but I didn't really. Right, like I didn't have an Instagram account where I could go. Gee, I wonder, I wonder, you know, what's going on in the world, and I, you know, subscribe to like five or six different hashtags in the world of music and entertainment and food, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, I'm think about what you see. Right now, you're 20, and you live in Podunk, Podunkville, and you see all this stuff, and around, and you're you're one of the best. You're smart. You're, you're, you know, you're getting a degree or you have entrepreneurial ambitions. You have the right attitude. You want to build something for yourself and you're looking around and everybody's on meth or freaking heroin. Uh, the people that are like living right are barely getting by and you see the rest of the world and how it works. Now you're even more likely to leave. And many, many years ago, I did a show called Death of the Suburbs and I talked about this back then. 
And it's only gotten more true at this point. And I know we're talking about rurals. Uh, environments here where we don't technically have a suburb, but in a lot of small towns, there's a lot of suburbs, right? That They're not the way you think of a suburb like you think of a suburb of Dallas, Texas, or Los Angeles, California, where it's almost like it's own little town. What I'm saying is you have developments, and they are often given names that you won't find on a map, Okay, so where I grew up in Pottsville and Minersville, Pennsylvania, there were little suburbs all over the place you won't find on a map. Uh, T-Berry Hill, uh, New Minersville. It sounds like a, a like a bigger, uh, you know, a new. It's not. It's just a place where they built a bunch of houses up on a hill after they built the old old Minersville. It's still Minersville. They call it that. And then you, you have these communities develop their own little microcultures and everybody knows each other and you know, it is, it's everything you wish the, the, the big suburbs were and aren't. Well, those places take it really hard as people start leaving and as the older people die. And this whole phenomenon, what happens is suburbs over here grow. But suburbs over here die. And that's what I was trying to explain back right then. I'm not saying all the suburbs will die. I'm saying there's going to be massive amounts of suburbs dying. And you'll have some resurrected, but you're having incredible growth in the urban sphere. Because we're getting to a point where if you live in a big city, you can get anything and everything you want relatively cheap. And as we move more and more toward automation... It's only going to be more of the case. that we, Now, the problem is, as you cut incomes, by cutting jobs, do you have any money at all? But for those that do, the cities are going to become kind of an at-your-fingertip at your demand society on a level we can't even think of yet. I mean, I was just watching on TV the other day, and now Little Caesars has a thing where you have an app on your phone, and you have an account with them. You build your pizza. Right, I'm, it's not exciting me because I'm not a little Caesar's kind of pizza. I'm gonna, if I'm gonna eat pizza, I'm gonna eat good pizza, right? I, but you know, they, it's a, it's a thing. People like it. My son and his family love Little Caesars. So you set up your pizza. You push a button, and it says, you know, you can pick your pizza up in 15 minutes. And when you get to Little Caesars, you don't talk to anybody. You've already paid, and they have these boxes that are like, like, kind of like. Boxes like, you know, like, kind of think of them like pizza lockers. Like if you go to a gym and you have a locker, right, and they give you a key for it. So you have a, a, an electronic code for your pizza, and it tells you what box your pizza's in. So you walk in, you push your code, and then the box opens, and you take your pizza out and you leave. Friends and neighbors, do you think it's hard to build a robot that makes pizzas? I mean, Little Caesars franchises are going to become one guy that stocks the machine, probably the owner until he has 12, and then he'll hire somebody to stock them for him. So how many jobs is that gone? Uh, it's either Domino's or Pizza Hut that's already started using uh, driverless vehicles to deliver your pizza. You just go out and get your pizza from the car. right? So, I mean, as that continues, you're going to get to a point where everything's going to cost less, you know, reflected to, to inflation, but yet income's going to be more and more difficult to acquire, so that's going to naturally push toward the urban because it's you, you like when I started looking at doing a property development, a lot of things that I thought were stupid started to make sense to me. Like, why do they pack the houses so close together? Well, when you look at the cost of developing infrastructure, 
it makes sense to have, you know, this kind of blocked off neighborhood with some cul-de-sacs and then flat. I mean, as soon as you start doing the math. And so when you start then putting people into multi-tenant buildings, high rises and things like that, everything gets easier to do. Cost of living actually goes down. I'm not saying I want to live that way. I'm saying this is what the numbers do. And so we're in a situation like the only way I see for, for any of these kind of small rural communities and suburbs and these, these, these like, again, like these sub-communities, like, like I'm talking about, right, to survive is somebody has to want it. Like it has to be a target. We're going to save this place because you have to do things to put enough growth and things that are attractive to people in there. And I think the idea of, well, you get the growth and then you do it, I, I don't think that works, especially anymore. Like, the only thing that causes that growth is some kind of a boom. You know, Amazon picks this place to do some kind of remote sorting facility or something, and then there's a bunch of jobs. You know, because the days that somebody's going to discover gold or silver, so everybody's going to rush there, you know, energy does it a little bit, but energy does it the same way gold did it. Everybody runs in until they extract everything and they get all the infrastructure set up. And then the energy companies are like, okay, we need 10% of the people we hired to get here. And the other 90 have to go somewhere else. So I'd say that people that have that kind of boom in their town because of that, they need to build peripheral things that don't depend on that while they have that opportunity. You know? Are you going to be San Francisco? And I don't mean getting that big, but there was a, you know, a big part of what really drove the growth of San Francisco was the, the gold rush, right? Or are you going to be Tombstone? Tombstone, Arizona, you know, one of the few true things in that movie, the, 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 uh, the one that was with uh, Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as, uh, as, as Wyatt Earp, et cetera, was the one guy saying, we'll be as big as San Francisco in a few years. That mentality was in Tombstone. But once the easy silver was gone, Tombstone became a ghost town. So San Francisco built other things. And to be fair, they had a head start. They were there before, right? And they were already something significant. But you've got to, if you want to save these rural communities, you've got to do things. And a lot of it is to do, I think, with restaurants and stuff like that. Um, because it creates social hubs. And that's a big part that creates, when you have tight-knit communities, or not even tight-knit, when you can go out and meet someone you didn't know, right, and, and have a conversation, people like that, right? When you know everybody uh, because you don't really have anywhere to go, so you just know all the people on the corner that you hang around at, like your Hank Hill with the three other guys, it gets monotonous in a small town. And so I think that for these communities to survive, They have to be, there has to be enough people that want it to think about it and do intentional design. And I think that it's not going to happen in the vast majority of cases. The cool thing is, there are places where the opportunity is ripe, and the right group of entrepreneurs can create these types of magnets. We just did a thing about how millennials are flocking now to a lot of the places in the Midwest and all where people had been leaving. So it is, a, it is a cycle of boom and bust, and we have an opportunity to use the low-cost nature of some of these places to build something unique, especially when everything's moving toward complete high-tech and, and a complete lack of anything. And I think, you know, 
urban agriculture, from the small-scale stuff. like the, the young crowd is into this. This matters to them. But like if you're just sitting there watching it happen, there, there's not much you can do. You have to put together some sort of consortium and target a place and say, let's make this a place people want to live. Let's make this place kind of hip, kind of cool. Let's create opportunity here. And if, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it's not. And it's probably above the pay grade of the average person. You need some level of a commitment, some, some, some outside money that wants to come in and make things happen. And it's getting harder and harder to find. Um, it is what it is. I wish I had a better answer for you. Let's take another one. Uh, I'm a jerk. Here we go. Okay, so I'm going to try to go a little bit more broad with this. I, I don't really get exactly what's going on with how Canada handles their telecommunications and um, you know band frequencies for 5G because that's just rolling out. And honestly, like in, unless you're saying they're getting like the spectrums being given to a provider that's not where you are, because really like the, the spectrums are not location dependent, right? So I'll just accept this is a problem. But let's look at the root problem, because this is a problem that rural communities have had for a long time, right? Um, rural communities have traditionally fought keeping young people there, because most of these rural communities, if you think about it, think about it from this standpoint. They, they can either grow or decline. It's very difficult for them to remain in the stasis. Um, and if they grow to a certain point, then they're no longer rural communities. And most of the reasons people are there is because they want to live in rural communities. So it, 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 it's hard to stay in a stasis because in, and typically in rural communities, people tend to have more children. So if you have the average family having three children instead of two, then if everybody stays, your population grows by a third every year. And if you, know, if you could get a third, uh, one third, 33% return on investment, Uh, every year guaranteed. Well, I wouldn't even. I, you'd say, "What should I invest in?" That. Just don't. Well, sometimes you can get a bit. I don't care. If you can give me a guaranteed thirty-three and a third, and I can put all the money I want into it, because I know what's going to happen with exponential growth, right? So, I mean, that's. I mean, ten percent has a pretty big exponential growth, but a thirty percent exponential growth rate, and these urban communities would become big really fast. So, some percentage of those who are born there, if they want to have a life, and if that community is not going to grow from you know small town to mid-sized city, they have to leave. There's only so much opportunity there. So it's a standard thing that some percentage thereof in any rural community will leave. Well, if you reach a tipping point where more begin to leave than stay, and instead of you know finding that stasis, it starts to go down in population... You might even actually get, for a very brief period, a little bit of a boom time. Because there'll be less people than jobs, and therefore it's easier to find a job. And people that normally couldn't get a job now can. But as the population goes down, well, we don't need two grocery stores, right? And if, if there is a, if it's a rural community, small town environment, maybe a couple dozen small towns that actually make up the population of Uh, a, a, a mid-size or small city, um, but they're all kind of separated. But maybe there is a big uh, employer, West Virginia, the coal mines, for instance. Other places might be uh, an industrial park with two or three large corporations that went there for low labor rates. If that pulls out, 
then all of those communities can start to die. And as they do, young people look around, there's nothing here, and they leave. And here's the big thing. Generally, your best leave and your worst stay. Right? Because your, your best are like, I don't want to hang out with Billy and do heroin. I want a life. I want to go to, you know, they want, they, and young people, they want, they want a social life. I want cool bars to go to. I want concerts to go to. I want cool restaurants like I see on, and especially see, I think another thing driving it now is the internet. Cause when, when I was growing up in Pottsville, you know, since I had grown up in Jacksonville to, to a degree, but even in rural parts of Jacksonville, and, and we didn't live a very flamboyant, extravagant life, I knew there was some things that I was missing, but I didn't really. Right, like I didn't have an Instagram account where I could go. Gee, I wonder, I wonder, you know, what's going on in the world, and I, you know, subscribe to like five or six different hashtags in the world of music and entertainment and food, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, I'm think about what you see. Right now, you're 20, and you live in Podunk, Podunkville, and you see all this stuff, and around, and you're you're one of the best. You're smart. You're, you're, you know, you're getting a degree or you have entrepreneurial ambitions. You have the right attitude. You want to build something for yourself and you're looking around and everybody's on meth or freaking heroin. Uh, the people that are like living right are barely getting by and you see the rest of the world and how it works. Now you're even more likely to leave. And many, many years ago, I did a show called Death of the Suburbs and I talked about this back then. And it's only gotten more true at this point. And I know we're talking about rural uh, environments here where we don't technically have a suburb. But in a lot of small towns, there's a lot of suburbs, right? That They're not the way you think of a suburb like you think of a suburb of Dallas, Texas or Los Angeles, California, where it's almost like its own little town. What I'm saying is you have developments And they are often given names that you won't find on a map. Okay, so where I grew up in Pottsville and Minersville, Pennsylvania, there were little suburbs all over the place you won't find on a map. Uh, T-Berry Hill, uh, New Minersville. It sounds like a, a like a bigger, uh, you know, a new. It's not. It's just a place where they built a bunch of houses up on a hill after they built the old old Minersville. It's still Minersville. They call it that. And then you, you have these communities develop their own little microcultures and everybody knows each other and you know, it is, it's everything you wish the, the, the big suburbs were and aren't. Well, those places take it really hard as people start leaving and as the older people die. And this whole phenomenon, what happens is suburbs over here grow. But suburbs over here die. And that's what I was trying to explain back right then. I'm not saying all the suburbs will die. I'm saying there's going to be massive amounts of suburbs dying. And you'll have some resurrected, but you're having incredible growth in the urban sphere. Because we're getting to a point where if you live in a big city, you can get anything and everything you want relatively cheap. And as we move more and more toward automation... It's only going to be more of the case. that we, Now, the problem is, as you cut incomes, by cutting jobs, do you have any money at all? But for those that do, the cities are going to become kind of an at-your-fingertip at your demand society on a level we can't even think of yet. I mean, I was just watching on TV the other day, and now Little Caesars has a thing where you have an app on your phone, and you have an account with them. You build your pizza. 
right? I'm, it's not exciting me because I'm not a Little Caesars kind of pizza. I'm gonna, if I'm going to eat pizza, I'm going to eat good pizza, right? I, but, you know, they, it's, a, it's a thing. People like it. My son and his family love Little Caesars. So you set up your pizza. You push a button, and it says, you know, you can pick your pizza up in 15 minutes. And when you get to Little Caesars, you don't talk to anybody. You've already paid. And they have these boxes that are like, like, kind of like boxes, like, at, you know, like, kind of think of them like pizza lockers. Like if you go to a gym and you have a locker, right, and they give you a key for it. So you have a, a, an electronic code for your pizza, and it tells you what box your pizza's in. So you walk in, you push your code, and then the box opens, and you take your pizza out and you leave. Friends and neighbors, do you think it's hard to build a robot that makes pizzas? I mean, Little Caesars franchises are going to become one guy that stocks the machine, probably the owner, until he has 12 and then he'll hire somebody to stock them for him. So how many jobs is that gone? Uh, it's either Domino's or Pizza Hut that's already started using uh, driverless vehicles to deliver your pizza. You just go out and get your pizza from the car. right? So, I mean, as that continues... You're going to get to a point where everything's going to cost less, you know, reflected to, to inflation, but yet income's going to be more and more difficult to acquire. So that's going to naturally push toward the urban because it's, you, you, like when I started looking at doing a property development, a lot of things that I thought were stupid started to make sense to me. Like, why do they pack the houses so close together? Well, when you look at the cost of developing infrastructure, It makes sense to have, you know, this kind of blocked off neighborhood with some cul-de-sacs and then flat. I mean, as soon as you start doing the math. And so when you start then putting people into multi-tenant buildings, high-rises and things like that, everything gets easier to do. Cost of living actually goes down. I'm not saying I want to live that way. I'm saying this is what the numbers do. And so we're in a situation like the only way I see... For, for any of these kind of small rural communities and suburbs and these, these, these like, again, like these sub-communities, like, like I'm talking about, right, to survive is somebody has to want it. Like it has to be a target. We're going to save this place because you have to do things to put enough growth and things that are attractive to people in there. And I think the idea of, well, you get the growth and then you do it, I, I don't think that works, especially anymore. Like the only thing that causes that growth is some kind of a boom, You know, Amazon picks this place to do some kind of remote sorting facility or something, and then there's a bunch of jobs. You know, because the days that somebody's going to discover gold or silver, so everybody's going to rush there, you know, energy does it a little bit, but energy does it the same way gold did it. Everybody runs in until they extract everything and they get all the infrastructure set up, and then the energy companies are like, okay, we need 10% of the people we hired to get here. And the other 90, you have to go somewhere else. So I'd say that people that have that kind of boom in their town because of that, they need to build peripheral things that don't depend on that while they have that opportunity. You know, are you going to be San Francisco? And I don't mean getting that big, but there was, a, you know, a big part of what really drove the growth of San Francisco was the, the gold rush, right? Or are you going to be Tombstone? Tombstone, Arizona, you know, one of the few true things in that movie, the 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 the, uh, the one that was with uh, Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as uh, as, as Wyatt Earp, etc., was the one guy saying, "We'll be as big as San Francisco in a few years." That mentality was in Tombstone, but once the Easy Silver was gone, Tombstone became a ghost town. 
So San Francisco built other things. And to be fair, they had a head start. They were there before, right? And they were already something significant. But you've got to, if you want to save these rural communities, you've got to do things. And a lot of it is to do, I think, with restaurants and stuff like that um, because it creates social hubs. And that's a big part that creates, when you have tight-knit communities, or not even tight when you can go out and meet someone you didn't know, right, and, and have a conversation, people like that. Right? When you know everybody uh, because you don't really have anywhere to go, so you just know all the people on the corner that you hang around at, like your Hank Hill with the three other guys, it gets monotonous in a small town. And so I think that for these communities to survive, they have to be, there has to be enough people that want it to think about it and do intentional design. And I think that it's not going to happen in the vast majority of cases. The cool thing is there are places where the opportunity is ripe and the right group of entrepreneurs can create these types of magnets. We just did a thing about how millennials are flocking now to a lot of the places in the Midwest and all where people had been leaving. So it is a, it is a cycle of boom and bust, and we have an opportunity to use the low-cost nature of some of these places to build something unique, especially when everything's moving toward complete high-tech and, and a complete lack of anything. And I think, you know, urban agriculture, from the small-scale stuff, like the, the young crowd is into this. This matters to them. But, like, if you're just sitting there watching it happen, there, there's not much you can do. You have to put together some sort of consortium and target a place and say, let's make this a place people want to live. Let's make this place kind of hip, kind of cool. Let's create opportunity here. And it, it, if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it's not. And it's probably above the pay grade of the average person. You need some level of a commitment, some, some, some outside money that wants to come in and make things happen. And it's getting harder and harder to find. Um, it is what it is. I wish I had a better answer for you. Let's take another one. Uh, I'm a jerk. Here we go. Jack, you're a jerk. I heard about Citizens Assisting Citizens from one of your podcasts. I looked into it, and I was very impressed. I knew I would like to assist in disaster relief efforts, but having a full-time job kept me from being able to volunteer at all. So instead, I donated money to CAC each time there was a natural disaster. Then it happened, the disaster, right here, one county away from me. Hurricane Michael hit with a vengeance, and almost in my own backyard. Knowing I was so close to the event, I volunteered to be a safe haven home for those who could go out and help. Well, because of you, this is what happened. My home not only became a safe haven for actual disaster volunteers, but my shop became a warehouse in which thousands of dollars of relief supplies were mailed from citizens assisting citizens. Others in the local area became volunteers, and together we made up hundreds of hygiene and food kits from the supplies that CAC sent. We went out to the rural affected areas and distributed supplies, cut three walls of houses, assisted with food tents, and helped make immediate repairs to a few homes. I worked my ass off. But it doesn't stop there. Another shipment of supplies will be coming next week, so we can do it all over again. Simply amazing. Because of you introducing me to CAC, I have never felt so rewarded while giving. This group of volunteers are go-getters. 
I wish all of your listeners could give just a little bit because I personally know just how much good is done with those donations. Thank you, Jack, for introducing me to Citizens Assisting Citizens, you joke, Molly in Florida. You know, that hits me like right in the feels. Um, for those that are maybe newer to the show and don't know, Citizens Assisting Citizens is an organization that I founded, I got up and running, and I stepped away from it, uh, which is, in many instances, the right thing to do because my, my superpower is kind of getting things off the ground. And then once they're off the ground, I, I'm a consummate entrepreneur. I get bored. And I'm not good at detail work and things like that, so I know my strengths. And, and I don't want to interfere with people doing good work. So I put together people that had background and understood first responders and uh, government requirements and things like that, and I got out of the way. And I'll be honest, for a while I was very frustrated, and I thought the whole thing was just going to need to be put to death like a, like a, like a rabid dog. Uh, but, you know, people fought through it, got through it, and established a very stable, growing organization. And... I wanted this to be this way. I, and this is exactly what this organization was supposed to do. I sat in utter dismay while people waited for help in the middle of the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy when it strafed the East Coast. And I thought, my God, how are people watching these commercials and donating millions of dollars a day and no help's getting to these people? There are, and it's like, you know, and the, the, the logistics of the Red Cross are just preposterous. There, there's literally no, no reason to give them money during a disaster. Because the money they get during a disaster is never going to go toward that disaster. The, the, their logistics are so slow, that disaster's response is done before any of that money coming in and their advertising campaign that they use as an opportunity. And, and I'm sitting here going, all these people really need our food water, and energy. And there's Costco's fully stocked 75, 80 miles away. And there's thousands of people that would get in their car, drive there, and pick shit up and take it in. But it's not happening. And people were trying to help and being basically told to go screw by people you know, with FEMA and the Red Cross. Oh, go make a donation. We don't need you here. And I'm like, this is, this is shit. We need a rapid, fast response team that can get in there and not fix everything, but find people that need help, find out what they need, acquire it, and get it to them. And that's what we have. And if you're wondering if your money is well spent donating to CAC, the answer is it is very well spent. And you won't see them deploying 87 times a year to every little thing that happens. We know what we're good at. Broad-scale disasters where regular first response units are overwhelmed and cannot get to everybody. And we are not big enough to fix everything, but almost every dollar that goes in will end up in some way or form being put in the hands of someone that needs it. You know, we do pay for responders' fuel and sometimes for a room, but most of the time they don't even stay in a hotel. There isn't one anyway. You know, we might have people on a long way in if they have to stop overnight and stay at a hotel on the way and pick that up. We might pay for some food. But that's it. All the rest of the money that goes into there, I would say a good 90 to 95 cents on the dollar is probably going into something that is going into the hand of a victim. And I defy anybody else to do any better. It, there is some operational cost doing things like that. 
I would say we're probably about a thousand percent better than the Red Cross and similar organizations. And I am so proud of the work that everybody that's been involved has done. And it is, it, 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 you know, like when I'm an old man and I'm ready to kick off and, and, and get in a box, uh, I'm going to look back and think, you know, what are my big accomplishments? And, and I, I guarantee even at that time, CAC uh, will be one of them. And, and I, I just want to say the people that have donated their time and their effort and their talent, thank you. Uh, and the people that you're helping, thank you. And uh, thank you for the call. And thanks for calling me a jerk. Sometimes being called a jerk makes my day. For those who are new to the show and don't get the joke, uh, many, many years ago, I would say things like pay off all your debt. And you're never going to call me and go, Jack, you're a jerk. I have all this stupid money laying around. And somewhere about two years ago, someone finally snapped to it and said, I'm going to tell him he's a jerk for that. So they did it kind of tongue-in-cheek, and now it's a thing. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. This one on, you know, the crazy idea that AAA could be a good prepper move. Hey, Jack. So I think it was uh, it was a little bit ago, and you had the shows on how to be prepared for just about anything. And there was something that came up to my mind, and that is, and I think it's commonly overlooked, AAA. I'm not just talking about, like, in the prepper community. Just in general, the people that I meet whose circumstances could have been prevented by spending $52, AAA. And for those of us who are preppers, double that up. Spend 52 bucks on AAA and then spend the $3 a month at a cost to get your road tied with whatever insurance carrier you have. I just thought I'd bring that out because it blows my mind. The, the AAA thing just blows my mind. I don't even know how to end this call. Just, hey, everybody, get AAA. Thanks, Chick. So, yeah, uh, let, let's talk about this concept a little bit. Nine years ago, Dorothy and I, it was before we even moved to Arkansas, we were maintaining that place as kind of a remote bug-out location property. Uh, we were up there for 4th of July. It was actually the 4th of July when this happened. And we, we lived about six miles from anything that you'd call a main road. It was a private road, very small, very hilly, mountainous place. And the transmission on my Dodge truck ran out. And uh, <laughs> I, I was sitting there, and it was like 100-something degrees out. And right when we broke down, our neighbor, uh, Scott, came by and said, hey, what's up? And we told him, he said, well, get in, I'll give you a ride. I'm like, well, I don't leave a truck here. And I, so I'm talking to Scott. Dorothy's on the phone AAA. She says they're coming. They'll be here within 30 minutes. He's like, well, call me after they get here, and I'll come pick you up. So we're sitting there waiting for AAA to come, and I thought, well, this is a good opportunity, teachable moment for the, for the show and for the YouTube channel. So we get out, and I explain, you know, sometimes a AAA card is really a great prep. And I had people, like, just being assholes about it in the comments, like, yeah, when the Tewaukee comes, which is the end of the world as we know it, you, you, you know how good your, 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 your AAA card going to work then? Or now imagine you're 75 miles out in the middle of the desert in Mojave Desert and now call AAA. Well, idiot, I hope you've prepared for those types of things too, especially if you plan on going to the Mojave Desert. And it was... It was monotonous how many people there were. Now, I actually looked up the video. It's in the show notes for a link today. And a lot of the comments like that are gone. Um, 
And I'm like, but you can see my responses to them. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I realize it's most likely over the years that those particular individuals uh, managed to get themselves banned from my channel as a whole or possibly pissed off YouTube enough to get their accounts wiped out. Who knows? Because um, that does happen when somebody's a chronic troll, et cetera, at times. Um, so a lot of them, you can only see my response to them. But you can surmise from my response the idiocy of what these people were saying. Uh, on a side note, real quick, there was also people saying stuff like, I had 13 Dodge products, and every single one of them got a bad transmission. I'm like, you're you're full of shit. Because like, if if you've bought six Dodges and they all had transmission problems, why did you buy the next seven? You know, come on. And th that particular truck, we had one transmission problem with it. Uh, we put one part on it, it was 300 bucks, and we never had a problem with that truck again. That truck. That was one of the best trucks I ever owned. The only reason that truck is gone is we got in a wreck a few years ago and it was totaled. Um, blew the front off of it and, and what have you. Darth and I were lucky to not be seriously injured. Um, so we, we, you know, I, I wish that truck was still here. I, I said nine years ago and it would still be the case if it was here now. My, the best feature that truck has is no payment. Um, but I think to be a little bit fair to the trolls, the concepts behind preparedness have changed. I'd like to believe that TSP is part of that culture change. Uh, over the years. I think part of it is there's a lot more preppers today, but they talk a lot less about stupid shit. Um, preppers 10 years ago, mostly, not, not all, but mostly the vocal ones, the ones that were in forums, the ones that were publishing articles, were kind of you know edging at least toward the tin hat. Uh, they were preparing because they thought Obama was going to sell us out to the UN and the blue helmets were going to invade us. Uh, and, and, you know, there's going to be, and, and they were deep into the Alex Jones culture and, and things like that. And then, you know, people like that, when they get that geared up and that sure something is going to happen, and then years and years and years go by and none of it does. They kind of just go away, and they, they fall out of prepping, which is always one of the reasons I never wanted to build anything based on that. Now, over those 10 years, we've seen hurricanes, we've seen earthquakes, we've seen fires, we've seen landslides, we've seen ice storms, and a lot more people got woke up by all these natural disasters. And we've seen things that make us believe we could have terrorist stuff break out in the United States, it's made people think a lot more. And when they start to come into preparedness from that standpoint, rather than a global economic collapse where the dollar is being set on fire to keep you warm because it's the only way it's worth money, people start to, to take that assessment in and say, hey, well, what's the most likely things that could happen here? Tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, etc. They start to prepare for those things. And the problem even with that, though, is a lot of times the most simple things are overlooked. Um, I'm all for additional insurance, as the, as, as the gentleman noted as well, um, because sometimes AAA is good, and sometimes your insurance does better things for you. Um, I have on our insurance, if our vehicles are out because of anything for more than a couple days, we have rental insurance. Um, whether it's a wreck, whether it's a breakdown, doesn't matter. We have rental insurance. So that's saved our ass multiple times. Um, another I issue, though, is just how valuable AAA is in itself. I told you the Arkansas story. That was very useful to us. Um, and we were able to get a rental vehicle for the few days it took to get the truck back. And the main reason that was a problem is the, the dealerships, it's a small town, so the dealerships had closed 
for Friday and Saturday because Fourth of July was on four uh, on Thursday that year. Uh, so there was just you couldn't get it fixed because there was nobody to fix it. Nobody was working. Um, so that was that was helpful. But very recently, my former farmhand put gas in my F F three fifty. Without AAA, that would have been a mess. See, I have to have like an upgraded my my AAA costs more. I think it's like eighty nine bucks or something like that. I don't know um, because my vehicle's over a certain weight, and if if, if not, they won't tow. Well, because I had that type of AAA, they were to be able to, to dispatch a vehicle capable of towing my vehicle to me and get us off the road. So I'm on the phone talking to this millennial that works for me, who just sounds like he he sounded like he had murdered a family of five over just a breakdown. You know, just losing his mind. I'm like, just relax. We'll get AAA. I'm going to wait 10, 20 minutes. I'll come down and meet with you. And, and, and that all got taken care of. What would that have cost me without AAA? And for those of you that have larger needs, my friend David uh, with his company had kind of a, I don't remember exactly what the level is, like a corporate level or something like that. It's a few hundred dollars a year. But it covers like all your vehicles and longer towing. And I think his towing was up to 300 miles per use with no limit on the number of uses. So, like, they, and I don't remember if it was 300, 100, I don't remember what it was, but they got this truck out in West Texas they got for nothing, but it wouldn't run. And so they played leapfrog, and they basically would call for a tow truck, and they would tow it as far as they could to a hotel, and then stay that night in a hotel, and then call the next day, and they did, like, three legs of this and got the truck all the way back to his, his partner's place in Austin, uh, where they were able to then repair the vehicle and basically get a truck for nothing. Um, so I don't necessarily recommend that you do that, but my point with that is things like insurances, AAA programs, and stuff like that, being innovative and understanding all of the all of the rules, what is the contract, and how does that apply to you, allows you to get the most out of them. And people that say that, like, you're not a survivalist if you have AAA, you're an idiot. You're a moron. I mean, really. Like, that's like saying you're not a survivalist if you have life insurance. Well, when the economy collapses, well, what if it doesn't? So AAA is a perfect example. It is a perfect example of the, you know, the, the better life if times get tougher even if they don't. It really is, and I know I'm, every time I talk about AAA, I hear from people say, well, it's a good deal for you as a customer. It's not good for us as a driver. I'm sorry. I didn't make the system. I didn't make the rules, and I'm not the one that made you as an independent or your company decide that you wanted to take business from AAA. That's not my issue. That is not my circus. Those are not my monkeys. I just need to get my freaking vehicle off of a road at rush hour to a place that will fix it, AAA does that for me. I recommend everybody have that as one of your basic preparedness things. Mine has paid for it so many times. If we never use it again till the day that I die, I will still be ahead. Uh, my son had one problem child of a car he bought with an, like a theft deterrent ignition type thing with the chip and a key. That car had to have been towed when he first got it. In the first six months, had to be towed six times. And then eventually it finally, because the, the, the dealer that was stuck with it finally figured out, I better fix this because they're not going to stop bringing it back. Because uh, if your car doesn't start, you, you have to. Uh, and they finally got it done right for him. Uh, and it wasn't again. But, I mean, what are six tow jobs there? What's that? 
With that, let's take another one, this one on selling guns. Uh, this guy called and then thought about something and called back. I'm going to play both his calls, and I'll give you my thoughts. Hey, Jack. Chris from Northeast Indiana. Thanks for all you do. Question. Is there a good way to sell a number of firearms while maintaining uh, the best value? Details. I've inherited a number of firearms from my father-in-law. Uh, a few years ago, I'm, I'm really the caretaker of that collection. It's a bit of a savings account for my mother-in-law. And she's agreed to let me trade in the collection while maintaining the value to maybe get rid of a few pieces that I'm not interested in or we have duplicates of and then acquire some that I'm interested in. Looking for some of the best ways or, in your opinion, uh, some of the best ways to sell a few off without losing a bunch of the value. Thanks, Jack. Hey, Jack, Chris from Northeast Indiana again. I heard your voice as soon as I hung up the phone saying the problem is the solution. What would be your thoughts on getting an FFL and then just making uh, the collection part of an initial inventory into kind of a side business uh, peddling guns? Thanks again. Okay, let's start out with just in general getting the best price for guns. In general, you will do much better selling to an individual than selling to a dealer or a store. You sell to a dealer or a store, their initial, you know, everything that they're thinking is, how, can I make money on this? How much is it going to cost me for how long before I sell this and get some money out of it? And the longer they think they're going to have to hold on to it, the more they're going to have to make to make it a good business decision. You can go to a gun dealer with like a one of a kind gun that you know might auction for ten thousand dollars, and if they can't see that they're going to be able to move it, uh, they're they're not interested because they might be a shop where people just don't come in and drop ten thousand dollars on a collectible, you know. So that's an extreme, but it gives you kind of that's that's how you have to start to think about it. kind of think about it like pawn stars. People come in and they're real attached to something, and they're like, oh, this is really special. It may be. But the business person you're talking to doesn't give a shit, right? They're like, I don't care. All this represents to me is inventory, and either I make a profit or I take a loss. And even if I make a profit, the longer I sit on it, the less, the less profit I truly make because I have capital tied up and opportunity costs tied up. The next is, in general, do not sell high-end accessories with the gun. If you do, price them separately or make it clear to the person you don't have to take these two. Um, you know, I've seen people go into a gun, especially when you go to shops. This is when you're like, I just need money, so I'm going to go to a shop. Um, you know, they'll go in there and they got a set of rings on there that are worth a hundred bucks. Not, not even in the scope yet. It's like a hundred dollar high-end set of scope rings. They don't give a shit. Because they know the person they sell it to is most likely not going to give a shit. Um, so, in general, I would take scopes, rings, slings, etc. off and say, this is the gun. I'm selling the gun for this. Here's stuff that can go with it. You know, do you want it? Um, you'll get a better price for the underlying gun that way. You, you, you really will. Because people, when they buy a gun, they're thinking about the value of that gun. And it makes it more evident. Low-end accessories that you really don't want, that you're not going to be able to sell independently, leave them on there. So that's, you know, so private private sales, high-end accessories off the gun. Uh, you know, but if it's a, if it's a $50 Tasco scope and an $11 set of, of uh, you know, 4x4 four four rings or something like that, 
just it's more trouble to take it off than it's worth to take it off at that point. And then somebody might, you know, if it's a lower end gun, say, oh, it looks good enough for now. So it might actually, you're not going to get money for those cheap accessories, really, but it might make the gun sell a little easier. Okay. And when you have a, the, the, the other thing to getting the best value for a gun, and you learn this from the shopkeeper's attitude, is you can't want to sell it fast. You have to be willing to wait. And you have to realize that almost any gun that you have for sale today, there's another one like it out there for sale. And if it's sitting there for sale for some length period of time, pfft. now, you can sell your guns on GunBroker without an FFL. And I'll talk about why you might get it and why you might not get an FFL here in a minute. The person buying it needs to find a local FFL to do the transfer. You don't have to be an FFL to sell your guns on GunBroker. That would be one of the places I would really look. What this makes me think of, though, is one time this happened to a friend of mine. And I was a, uh, a sales VP for a company, and it was a small companies before my career really took off. And uh, this was the kind of companies run by outdoorsmen. The, 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 the two brothers that owned this company were big into guns. People brought guns into the office all the time. Most of the people that worked there were into guns. And our ops uh, manager, Robert, knew a lady whose husband passed away, and he had a whole bunch of guns. So Robert brought all the guns in and uh, said, here's a price for all of them. Now, Texas, the private sale of guns between individuals is completely legal and requires no paperwork. Your mileage may vary in your state. But this would be something else that I would look for. So Robert did this to be nice. Um, but if you know somebody that knows a whole shitload of people for some type of opportunity, uh, basically you're doing a private gun show. And I think this lady's husband left behind something like 25 various guns. And in two days, Robert sold 23 of them, all to you know myself and other employees of the company. I think I bought two. Uh, one being a 1917 Enfield that had been sporterized that I, st I still look back and think that was one of the smartest things that I ever did was spend my money on that gun. I love that gun, and it's a piece of history. And, yes, some somebody you know redneckized it, but they actually did a really good job on it. And looking at the serial numbers and all on it, I actually think that that particular gun may never have been a gun gun until the redneck got a hold of it. Um, I think it may have been purchased uh, as a barreled action. Uh, because a lot of them were. The 1917 Enfields, and I know you hear Enfield and think they're 03 British, but no, it's a 30 6 It's what the U.S. used in World War I. Uh, they were sold like mad for like 19 bucks for a barreled action, uh, just in, in a time between, like right in the middle between World War I and World War II. Uh, and a lot of people bought them and, and made them into deer rifles, and they made damn good, if not a bit heavy, deer rifles. So that would be another avenue to look at. But trying to sell a private party uh, using online uh, methodology but selling local so you can stay legal or you know you can ship you can ship a gun uh, but it needs to ship to an FFL and that's usually 20 bucks now should you get an FFL my my view here would be if you look at this and say to yourself, I would like to be an FFL. I am fine with the responsibilities that go along with that. And here's what else I would do with that FFL. Um, then yes. 
And if this is like the kind of like, you really want to do this, but you just need a kind of one thing to kick you in the ass to get you off your ass and do it, yes. If it is, if this had not happened, you would never have even considered it, don't. Um, the buyer can pay the 20 to 25 bucks and let somebody else do it. Uh, unless this is hundreds of guns, you know, where you can make a few thousand bucks on the $20, saving the $20 fee, well, then no. And that, see, that's still going to require you to sell it. And it's still going to require you to sell it somewhat locally. You're not going to be able to act as the FFL. Let's say if you are here in, in, in Texas, and you didn't say where you were, and a guy buying it in Virginia, you can't act as the FFL and then ship to him. He has to have a local FFL that does the paperwork and all that stuff. So it would only help you selling locally. And odds are, unless you live in one of the really effed up states and almost said it um, you can just go ahead and do that without the FFL So, anyway those are my thoughts uh, with that let's take another one and if anybody has any ideas for this guy post them in the comments section of the episode uh, this one is on some I know a little bit about data cabling here we go hey Jack Tom from Tennessee here I have a question on ethernet cabling background I'm running an Ethernet network from my house to my barn and would like to use uh, either fiber or LAN cable. If the distance is approximately 330 feet, and I've read that over 100 meters Ethernet cabling won't work. So my question to you is, should I use fiber or extenders, or what would be the best method to transmit the data 330 feet away? Thanks, Jack. Have a great day. Okay, so the first thing I would recommend that you consider at that distance is point-to-point -point wireless. And there's a lot of point-to-point -point wireless solutions out there, and you can just start searching on Amazon and find solutions that will cover that distance. And basically what you'll have is uh, a little antenna mounted on, on the, the, the outside of the building that you have your, your, your router in, Your router will be connected to that uh, with cabling, and then it will transmit point to point to another little antenna that will be mounted on the roof or on the wall of the other building, and there'll be a cable that passes through the wall, and at that point you have signal out there. And that, and you can do that with, you know, if you need a little more boost to it, a PoE or power over Ethernet solution, and, and that's not that hard. And if, if, you, ha if you decide you want to do that, because I don't want to bore people here, uh, and I don't want to waste my time if you don't want to do that with what else I'm going to tell you, um, and you can't put together a solution, then get with me, and I will help you pick out parts. I'll do that free of charge, because uh, you're a show listener, and this can be a little bit complicated. Okay, now let's go back to distance over Ethernet. Um, it, it doesn't really make any sense to go anything other than what we used to call, anyway, fast Ethernet, which is a 100 megabit connection. Uh, cabling distance limitations are not limitations, they're guarantees of performance. Now, I'm going to get some network head type people that are going to tell me that I'm wrong here, and I want to, before I say this, kind of profess my, my background in data cabling, copper and fiber both. Um, I was in the industry for years as a technician and a salesperson. I eventually was the re Northeast Regional Vice President of Sales for Microtest. And when, when Microtest was bought by Fluke Networks, 
Uh, I then became the Northeast Regional uh, Sales VP for infrastructure test equipment for Fluke Networks, and I did that job for three years. I have tested literally copper and fiber both, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of cable, and I know enough about cable testing to bore you to tears. So when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you can, in fact, take it to the bank, all right? The distance restriction on, let's say, 5E or CAT6 of 100 meters is not real. And all of the specifications for it were written by the engineering departments of the cable manufacturers and the cable test equipment manufacturers themselves. TIA, EIA standards are written by the industry itself. There's no third It's not really a third party. They get together and they make and they agree upon a standard and then that becomes the standard for the industry. It's an industry set standard. What they're saying is if you do this this way, it will 100% always work as advertised if properly installed and assuming there's no material defect. Okay? It's a lot like an expiration date on a can of beans. Okay, the can of beans says it expired on October the 20th, 2018. We're now at October 25th, 2018. Would you eat that can of beans? Would you even think about throwing it away, assuming you liked the variety? And the answer is no. And a month from now, you'd still eat them. And unless you're an idiot, two months from now, you'd still eat them. There is a point, though, where you'd say, eh, no, no, okay. Distance across copper Ethernet cable, especially if we're not doing gig Ethernet, and there's no reason to do gig Ethernet in this application, is a lot like that. You can exceed that limit, and it will work. The furthest we ever did one, we had a customer that had a single drop that needed to go way in the back of this warehouse. And they looked at doing fiber optics for it, and it just didn't seem like it was worth the extra money. And... What we ended up saying is, I think it'll work, but it won't pass the test. But we can look at the individual components of the test. And we ran a piece of Cat 5E through this warehouse roof, put it down, dropped it down there, plugged a workstation into it, booted it up, and it worked fine. Then to give the customer more confidence, we took out... Uh, a Fluke DSP tester, I think they call them something else now, this back when it was the DSP, and we ran the test for 5E on it. It failed. But when we looked at the individual parameters, attenuation, near-end crosstalk, etc., all across the board, at almost 500 feet, it passed, but it failed because of the distance. What that meant is that drop could not be certified for the manufacturer's warranty. Customer didn't give a shit. We just saved him a thousand bucks or more, and the guy that needed to be on the network could be on the network, and that was all that mattered to him. So if you run something like Cat6 at that distance, and you do a wired connection, and you say it's 330 feet, so you're probably going to be more like 350 foot, because it doesn't matter how far it looks, it matters how far the cable goes. And when you do a cable run like this, put a service loop in the cable. So there's maybe another 10 feet there. So this will be 350 feet-ish to do this run. It will work. If you hook up 
a 100 megabit device on both ends of it and run fast, it will, it will work. Might it occasionally drop a packet or something? Yeah, it's going to work. So if you want it to be wired, because here's your problem with fiber. Okay, you're going to put fiber. If you're going to bury it, which I guess you're going to have to, now you need some sort of conduit. So now you're going to, you, you can use PVC pipe. You don't have to use poly, right? So you got the pipe, you got the glue, you got the fittings, you get to pull the fiber through it. Do you have a connectorization kit for fiber? Do you know how to do it? So now you got to buy pre-connectorized fiber. Well, now you got to go to bigger um, pipe just so the fiber will fit through there with the connectors on it. So now your expense goes up with that. Then you need a media converter on each side. You can get a decent, fast Ethernet media converter today for about $50 bucks a piece. So there's $100 bucks of media converters. Both of those need power. And the fiber's done nothing. See, it's the thing. By the time you're done with this and you're into it for more than $1,000 additional cost over either of the other two solutions, and the fiber's bought you nothing, it's not going to be faster. 100 meg over fiber is the same as 100 meg over copper. It's the same thing. So don't let that distance limitation bother you. Where do you start thinking about it? Even though I said we ran one 500 feet, around 400 feet. And do you want it, do you want it to be upgradable later to something like Gig E? The distance issue gets to be a little bit more of an issue there. Um, but I don't see why you need Gig Ethernet to your outbuilding, right? You, because again, where is your where is your your bottleneck? Your bottleneck is on your router. What do you have coming into your house? If you have a hundred meg connection into your house, anything above that within your local network is a waste, unless you're doing large file transfers. If you're, doing, if you're doing some kind of CAD development or something, you're doing large transfers between the buildings, well, then call me and we'll, or, or email me and we'll, we'll, we'll work up a solution for you. And this would still probably be plenty. Okay? Um, so, and if you were doing that, you'd probably know what to do anyway. So that's my take on this. And I know some of you guys are in network administration stuff out there, and you're going to flip out that I said you can run that, that circuit or that link, channel, et cetera, at a greater distance. I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's, it, it works. You trust me, you could take it to the bank. Um, let's take another one. This one on security for vehicles that, well, everything's on display inside them. Hi, Jack. Nick from California. How would you recommend protect our things in our trunks? Uh, my girlfriend just had her car broken into, and it's a hatchback, so you can see absolutely everything that's in her trunk. Yet, I thankfully don't have that problem. But if I wanted to keep a kit of stuff in her car, how do I make sure it doesn't get stolen? Seems like a natural problem with the hatchback. Thanks for your information. Bye. So the number one thing that I would recommend if you had a hatchback-style vehicle, and this would not just be uh, people who have a car that's hatchback, uh, SUVs as well, um, where you have that cargo space back there, and kind of you can look in like a fishbowl, and you can see everything that's in there. And even if you don't have, you know, you know, diamond earrings in a jewel case, you know, if a thief looks in a vehicle and there's bags of stuff, you know, they start thinking there's good stuff in there. So it, it becomes more attractive to them. 
Now, the truth is that vehicle thieves will break into any vehicle that they think they can get into and get away breaking into because they know that they might find stuff under the seats, etc. But having something visible that makes it like i got to pick between these two and there's some stuff there makes it more attractive. So I would recommend a cargo cover. And they're usually, you know, you can match them to your interior color. And basically, they, they, they install so that they come right up to the window level, and they create a space underneath where you can't see what's in there. Now, would a thief still might think, well, there's something in there? Well, maybe, but it, it, it doesn't catch their eye as much. And almost every modern vehicle, if you just go to Amazon and type in, you know, Subaru, Expressor, or whatever they are, you know, cargo cover, you'll find... You know, ones for your make and model that will fit like a glove for about a hundred bucks. They're also kind of nice. You know, you're not gonna put anything heavy on top of them, but you can set like light groceries and stuff up on top of them and not mess with the stuff down below. It helps to organize things better, and it, it does kind of keep people from looking in. And when you open the hatchback, you can access everything from behind without um, you know taking it off. So it's not like you have to remove it every time you want to get something out of it. That would be one of my ideas. The other idea would be, and I think this is a good idea for a lot of vehicles, is people always ask me, why are you such a fan of black bags? And I am. I don't like you know, zebra unicorn uh, digital camo pattern XYZ trifecta. Right? I like black. The reason I like black is is multifold, but one is if I have a black case and I'm carrying it uh, in, a, in a business suit on my way into an office, it doesn't look tactical, even though it might be. It looks a lot less like a tact like black is a standard color, color that people have baggage in. Go to the go, next time you get on an airplane, count how many of the of the suitcases come out while you're waiting for yours, and what percentage of them are black. So black is a standard thing; it doesn't catch any uh, anybody's eyes. It also kind of disappears in dark spaces. So, you know, you take a black bag and you put it down in the floor uh, in the passenger area in your rear seat, and it just kind of disappears. You throw a baby blanket or some shit on top of it, and it's just, this is just a mom-mobile, and there's nothing good in here. Um, so those two things, I think, can go a long way toward providing better security. The other things, I mean, to think about where do you park. During the day, when I go to like a, a store or something like that, and I'm, I'm going to be leaving while it's still light out, I'll park as far away as I can to find that one tree that I can get my car in the shade. I'm not that worried during the day in a busy area where lots of people are going around. I'm really not. In fact, if I'm a car thief, that's kind of the last car I want. There's no other cars around it. Yeah, I'd rather be in a kind of a crap, like there's cars everywhere and I can just kind of hide and, you know, pop a window or something and I just look like some guy, you know, digging stuff out of my own car or something. Kind of when you're out, you feel more exposed. But you got to think about where you park. At night, I want to park where it's uncomfortable. If I'm away from home when I'm in a hotel, I will always try to park right out where I know the desk clerk can see my vehicle if I can find a space where my vehicle will fit to do that. Uh, I have gone as far as, hey, man, what, what car is yours out there? And the guy points. I'll park. If, if there's a spot next to him, I'll park next to his car. Because I know he's going to keep an eye on his car, and therefore he's going to keep an eye on my car. And then 
I don't like to have anything attractive on my vehicle. I really don't have any bumper stickers, window stickers, decals, uh, you know, NRA member, none of that stuff. It's not that I am ashamed of it. It's not that I fear any kind of reprisal. By it. Just I don't. I don't need to be advertising on my vehicle who and what I am. That's not. I'm not. I'm not I don't work for NASCAR. Nobody pays me for it. You know, I and and because we're in a day and age today where if if what you have even let's say you think Donald Trump's the 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 worst president in history of the country, if you have an NRA sticker, well, you're a Trump tart as far as some people are concerned, and they may damage your vehicle, they not even steal from it just because oh that's association there. Um, you know, back in in the in the nineties, people were keying Hummers. Because you're killing the planet, you're contributing to global warming. So, you know, I'm not saying to not have certain things because some people are like that, but I'm saying like you don't need to go out of your way to antagonize that type of a situation. So that that's kind of the best I can do. The, you know, the hatchback has some limitations because you can see what people that are going to steal are going to steal anyway. Uh, certainly, try to make things nondescript. That's the biggest. If you have to use the hatchback space, you don't have a cargo cover, you know, throw a moving blanket over it. You know, throw a moving blanket over it. Get a, a, a tattered, nasty looking, get a moving blanket and cut it in pieces and, or not in pieces, but make cuts in it. Put some duct tape on it and kind of fold it up and make a cargo cover with that. You know, it, 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 that way it kind of looks like it's just junk. Um, that, that's, that's kind of the best suggestions I can give you. But I think the cargo cover alone, because it gives you some additional security from a standpoint of not seeing, but it's also functional. So I don't like things that are one trick pony. So it serves more than, more than one function. And so I'd recommend you check into that. Any other suggestions for, for this type of thing? Please put them in the comments section of the show notes for this episode. So once again, we've come to the end of another episode of the Survival Podcast. And I uh, want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Uh, if you go there whenever you're going to shop online first and use our link, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Um, today I have a, a fill-in product for you. Um, I have for a very long time recommended the Mr. Coffee electric coffee grinder for grinding coffee and seasoning and spices and, and, and dehydrated vegetables and stuff like that. It's just fantastic for it. And it was a very inexpensive product. It was like 12 bucks or something like that. And I've sold thousands of them. I mean, literally thousands of those have sold through T-SPAS. I can never see who you are or who bought what. But I can pull up reports monthly, annually, quarterly, daily, and see what was ordered through T-SPAS and how many. And thousands of these little Mr. Coffee grinders have been bought. I have gotten zero complaints. Um, the only one I ever saw die was the one that Nicole Sauce killed because she filled it all the way to the top and didn't follow the instructions. And it was mine. And I immediately got another one. Um, but I got an email a couple days ago. Um, it's not available on Amazon anymore. And I looked and tried to find it. Like sometimes I just changed the listing, right? And I was able to find a seller that had them, but they were like 40 bucks. That grinder's not worth $40. So I was like, I need a new product to recommend. I've used one before by a company called uh, Epica, E-P-I-C-A. I think that's how you say it, Epica. And um, I, it, I'm very impressed with it. It's, it's probably got more power than the Mr. Coffee. 
And I looked it up, and they do have it available. So that's what I have for a review for you guys today, the Epica Coffee Grinder for spices and coffee. It has 1,900 reviews, and like 85% of them are four or five stars, and 75% of them are five. Uh, so it's, it's well thought of, and it works. It has a lot of horsepower for the size of the grinder that it is, though, and it is possible to overheat the motor. The manufacturer's instructions on it are very clear. No longer than 20 seconds to a pulse and no longer than 60 seconds of continuous use. So you can pulse for 20 seconds, pulse for 20 seconds, pulse for 20 seconds. That's a minute. Now you need to stop and let it completely cool back down or you can overheat the motor. You're not going to get the motor that's inside a $200 DeWalt drill inside a $20 spice grinder. It doesn't even make any sense to do it. Grinders of this size are not for grinding pounds and pounds and pounds of stuff. They're for grinding, you know, a jar full. And they do really well for that. So I recommend it, and I have the, the review up for it. If you've been looking for something like this, you've been meaning to get it. Uh, I also have a link in the PS. And what I said in the PS is this. I really think if you get this item, you'll be happy. But I've had my, uh, if I had my way, I'd still be going with the original Mr. Coffee Grinder. Part of me actually thinks the Epica might be better. In spite of that, though, I've used the Mr. Coffee for years, like over a decade. I've sold thousands of them on the website and not gotten a complaint. It's very hard to replace that kind of confidence. Mr. Coffee seems to have moved to a new model, and you can find it here. i got a link for it. I have yet to use it, though. So since I have hands-on experience with the Epica, I'm still recommending that as my lead product now. But the one for Mr. Coffee is $13. And if you wanted, you know, I would say that's a good bet, too. The Epica's $19. That's $13. And anything you buy on Amazon, if you're unhappy with it, you can return it. So you can get it, put it through its paces, decide if you like it or not. If you don't like it, you print out a label. You don't have to pay for postage. You send it back. So that's one of the great things about Amazon and why I like to recommend products on there. I know that even if I'm not wrong in my recommendation, if you just go, this isn't what I really wanted, I know you can get your money back, and, 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 or you can get a different item, and, and, and that makes me confident in my recommendations. But kind of full disclosure on that one. As for why you want one of these, yeah, it's good for grinding coffee, but the spices, spices and vegetables. And I give a, a dry rub that I recommend uh, for anything but really chicken and pork in the, the write-up, it's and here's what it's made with. Thyme, garlic, onion, mustard seed, fennel seed, chili powder, dehydrated celery, cumin, black peppercorns, and kosher sea salt. And i tell you exactly how to make it and the amounts and everything in the write-up. You try that dry rub, and you put that on some chicken, and you grill that chicken so you get a nice little bit of char on it, and you hit it with the baste from the other review I did earlier this week on the, on the, on the basting brushes. I'll tell you what, it'll wake you up. It'll make you want it. What is that, that, that stuff that uh, Nick Ferguson puts on everything he eats? Slap your mama. Slap your mama seasoning. I'm not a big fan of it myself, but if anything's going to make you want to slap your mama because it tastes so good, um, you try that rub and that base together. It'll blow you away. Uh, with that, let's go into our song of the day. Like I said, no big surprise today. It's ACDC, You Shook Me All Night Long. Um, when I looked at this day in history on the History Channel, um, this morning, and I saw, like, that's it, I'm playing, I was like, I want to hear it right now, and I listened to it while I put the show notes together. If there is a song that brings back the 80s, like, nightclub scene, it's this song. 
You, anyway, a bar that plays rock, right? Okay, and even country bars play the hell out of this song in the 90s. You couldn't go to a place where at some point during the night this song didn't get played and everybody, including the people that couldn't, were out on the floor dancing. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's an awesome song. It's got good sound, it's got lyrics, it's got good vocals, it's got good riffs, it's got good guitar solo. It's, come on guys and girls, it, put your hands over your little kids' ears if you really have to. It's about sex. That always works with rock and roll. Um, it's, uh, it's just, Awesome. And it's so awesome and so rocking that I wanted to play it for you on a Friday. But when I saw that it was today, all the way back in 1980, which is what, 38 years ago, this song was released. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about this song and a big memory for me with it. And it doesn't involve a club, it involves a car. When I was a kid, I've told the story before, so I'll do the short version. I, I, I collected scrap copper. I won't even talk about how, but it was legal. Um, and I got enough money together to buy my first car. I had to, pe had to have enough money to put gas in the car for six months, is what my dad said. Believed that I could do that. Pay for the car and pay for six months of insurance. And when I had that much cash, he let me get a car. So I got that all together and got that. I had more money. Right? I had enough money because I knew what I wanted, too. He kind of made me put the gas money... Um, And the I had to buy the insurance up front. And he kind of took the gas money away from me and said, whenever you need gas, come here and I'll give you money. So he knew I wouldn't blow it. So I had other money. And I went to Radio Shack, and I bought myself a, a decent Pioneer head, you know, stereo, and some 6 by 9 speakers and an amplifier. I think it was like a 40-watt amp, which isn't huge, but it was what I had. And... This Pontiac Grand Prix I bought had a thing, like a little cubby hole, right below where the stereo would mount. It took us, me and my two buddies, about four hours to yank the AM radio with eight-track deck out. It took more work to get that thing out of there than it, like putting the new one in was like that. But when, when I went to Radio Shack at the mall, right, this is the 80s, guys, uh, like I said, 1986, I guess, 86 or 87, I guess, um, And bought all the stuff from Radio Shack. There was a little kiosk guy there. He sold tapes. And a lot of them were like used. It was like a used cassette tape thing. But he had a box full of stuff that was just like yellow labels. It was like a yellow manila label inside the tape deck. And they were just plain, you know, basically pirated uh, tapes. And we're looking through them and we find ACDC. And it was a live recording of a concert. Pirated recording of a concert. Uh, and, of course this song was on it. So when I got that car with that stereo in it, and we took off finally to crank that little 40-watt amp and those 6x9s as loud as we could, the first song that I played in that car when I drove it way too fast on a road with a lot of curves in it and managed to keep it where it belonged anyway was this song. I would say this is one of those songs that can be dangerous when you're driving. It makes your foot get heavy. Don't do that if you're out on the road listening to me today. But do enjoy this song. And I think for those of you that are, you know, in your early 50s, mid 40s, in that range, I'm sure outside of it still too, because it's that iconic. But for you guys in my age bracket, this song just captures the 80s. And I'll tell you a little secret. I'm going to a Halloween party. I don't do that, but I'm doing it because 
The guy throwing it is Brian at ITS Tactical. He's a friend, and he asked me to come. And it's themed in the 80s. Dorothy's, I'm going to see if I can get her to put a picture online. She's come up with this 80s outfit that's a little radical. I'm going as me in the 80s. I'm wearing Timberland boots, faded blue jeans, a Led Zeppelin, uh, not a Led Zeppelin, a Van Halen concert T-shirt. Uh, and it's actually a shirt that I owned in the 80s. I was able to find a copy of it on Amazon. I guess you can get everything on Amazon. And a jean jacket. That was me in the 80s. And if he doesn't play this song at an 80s party, I'm going to have to whoop his ass. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.